Hey guys, what's going on? Justin Geike, and this is Chase Outdoors, the podcast. Welcome. Here we are, July 25th, 2020. And uh, boy, this month, like all the other ones here in 2020, have gone extremely fast with so much going on. And uh, last week, we tried to do our first episode on our YouTube channel, Chase Outdoors. And uh, we ran into some uh, audio issues with the uh, Podbean uh, platform of it, too. So if you went to the Podbean platform last week looking for the podcast, didn't find it, still want to catch episode 15, hop over to the YouTube channel to find it. We're sorry about that as we kind of work and navigate through trying to uh, improve the podcast experience with our store. Uh, as we talked about, we had been gone for several months in relation to COVID and, you know, I, I really promise I'm dedicated to try getting back and, and providing more content. There's been a lot going on in the area. Here we are. It's, you know, northern Wisconsin. We've had a beautiful summer and uh, what uh, has been the big topic for me right now is this is definitely fishing. Uh, guiding has been really busy uh, up here in this area. We do a ton of uh, trolling for walleyes on the Wisconsin River system. We do a lot of musky fishing. The lakes up north, we do a lot of musky fishing. Pan fishing is good everywhere. And for me, there's been a lot of focus on largemouth and smallmouth bass here the last several months too, as we compete in tournaments. A lot of my guiding has been bass related. And that's been really good. And last week I had talked about the fact that we had had uh, bluegills on their beds, we had had crazy high water temperatures up in the mid and upper 80s. We were still finding bass up really high and shallow and it really kind of jacked up my personal system and how I like to fish a lot. Once we move into the heat of the summer, I really like to slide out to deep weed edges, use my electronics, find those schools, try to get on that one mega school where you can go and you know, catch a big bag and, and win a tournament type of situation. And it just hasn't developed. I was out with um, uh, Walleye Tournament uh, Pro, uh, Tom Keenan, a couple weeks ago. We went and fished and it was just, everything was super sporadic. One lake, we couldn't find anything on the deep weeds, but we found some in the transition on the in-between. And then there was also spots where we moved up mega shallow and found them in a foot of water on gin clear water on docks. So it was really all over the place. So moving into this last tournament, the uh, Northwoods Bassmasters, which is just a local open. I've been doing that for a lot of years. I've had uh, a, a great amount of fun. You know, in the northern Wisconsin, you know, even though we aren't known as a largemouth fishery per se, really has a lot of high population largemouth bodies of water, some trophy potential, but we do have a lot of really good dedicated tournament anglers that uh, are pretty good sticks, not just here, but beyond. You've heard me mentioned through the podcast by Fred Cody Hayner, who's been an FLW and a BASS pro. We're going to have him on the podcast here really soon. Um, you know, there's just, we've got a lot of good sticks. Matt Steffen, who's on the FLW Tour side, uh, Tom Monsoor down by Lacrosse, and some of the best pro tournaments that are out there right now are found in Wisconsin too. Sturgeon Bay for our smallmouth and upcoming, um, the Elite Series is going to be on the Mississippi River in Lacrosse, which is a great smallmouth and largemouth fishery. So, you know, really, even though we aren't known like the southern states, and rightfully so, because we don't have the 20 and 15 and 10 pounders that we do down there. Man, it's a great place to largemouth fish. Uh, this tournament was on the Manaqua chain, which if, if you've never been, is, is one of the greatest fishing cities in, in the entire country. The number of lakes, the diversity of lakes, very family friendly with a lot of activities. And the chain itself is a really, really good high population multi-species body of water with some trophy potential. Um, this tournament turned out to not go quite as I expected it to, like all of them that you don't win, but fishing was really, really good. We probably caught 
40 plus bass over the course of the day uh, and we just really struggled to get those few big bites that you're always looking for um, but uh, it was a really really good tournament so I want to touch on some of the things we did which don't just apply to uh, largemouth bass in northern Wisconsin but really apply to so many places our primary focus was definitely weed edges in this event and uh, what had happened is we'd been talking and complaining about the lack of the summer bite really setting up well it finally set up and did what it was supposed to do and what i mean by that is we started sliding out from depths of of two to five feet of water out to you know like eight to twelve and once you get beyond 12 in this area, you really start to lose a lot of the vegetation. You open up with the lack of structure. And with our high volume of predators, predominantly you know, muskies and northern pike, I don't generally find largemouth bass kind of meandering out in that open water. So we like that hard to find uh, weed edge that gives those fish the cover that they need, but also like a break line or a transition line, you know, much like, you know, whitetails use in the woods, any kind of structural change or seam that they can move along, both for safety and for finding food. Uh, so basically what we did in the Thursday before the practice is we got out there and we used our electronics. Uh, I run Humminbird on my boat. Um, Sam runs Lawrence. They're both great units, but we use our side imaging and went looking for major changes on these weed lines. Now we could back out and troll along with the side imaging and then we could find in this case we found one spot that was a little finger that popped out so that was really easy in a long straight break line that was the concentrated difference or transition that was going to hold fish throughout that entire break line was that spot another spot that we had found was where that weed line came across it was still straight but there was a transition to a hard bottom that moved across to another weed bed and that transition period in between held an absolute boatload of fish and we could see them on the side imaging just off of the weeds but we found a lot of fish up into the weeds. Now um, as they always say in the state of Wisconsin if you don't like the weather uh, wait 15 minutes it'll change. Uh, that was definitely the case for tournament day. We <laughs> I posted up on our Facebook page and in our, in our Instagram, but we dealt with just the most insane lightning storm and some torrential downpours that were just absolutely crazy. You know, truth be told, for anybody that was traveling by uh, truck to get to the boat launch, it probably wasn't particularly safe. Um, but it was uh, it was hairy and it was sketchy. It was a major storm front. But luckily, by the time that we got there, uh, the wheat or the wheat, the rain had uh, died down dramatically. Uh, down to a light drizzle. In an hour or two into this 10-hour tournament, it was basically 80 degrees out and sunny, 85, I can't remember exactly, but it was hot, no clouds in the sky, it really turned into a nice day. But going into a major front like that where we'd had huge barometric pressure drops in, in I mean, really, a, one of the, probably the heaviest storm that we had had, um, I figured, as did Sam, that those fish were going to move really super negative. Now, what I like to do in the in the heat of the summer when we're talking about deep weed edges is I like to use punching as a tactic. And for those of you that don't know what that is, we're using big heavy rods, eight foot heavies, you know, like 50 pound super lines. We're using, you know, stout big reels. I like Shimano Corrado Ks. And then we're running a big creature bait, four inch creature bait with like a three quarter to one ounce tungsten weight in front of it. 
And we're doing that because we're pounding into these thick weeds to get the bait quickly down to the bottom where those bass will tuck up deep underneath to get out of the sunshine and, and it's kind of their ambush location too. That's my favorite way because it's big bites, big hook sets, hard fights, dragging them out of the weeds and stuff. And it's, it's just, it's a great way to bass fish. And, and we have so many waters in Wisconsin that have really high vegetation rates that that technique is really, really efficient. Same thing with Minnesota, you know, Florida. There's just a lot of places where punching is a great technique and Wisconsin's no different. Unfortunately, that just really hasn't been happening yet. It just now is starting to set up, but we went to the opposite of that. We went ultra, ultra finesse. I put those heavy rods and those bait casters down and I picked up my spinning rod. And what we did with techniques was we used the Ned rig and we used drop shotting, going down to small baits. Uh, Missile has a bait called a bomb shot, which is kind of a leech imitation. And then the four and a half inch robo worms on little small hooks. That technique proved to be absolutely dynamite. We had bites on almost every single cast for the first two hours of the morning. The problem was is we struggled catching big fish. You know, we had 30 fish in the first two hours and most of them were 1.1 to 1.7 pounds. And uh, that just obviously doesn't cut it so we needed big bites. We transitioned after it got sunny out and went back to throwing the big stuff. When we went and did that, we pulled up on this one point. I get the big bite that you ask for when you're throwing punching. I set the hook like home run hammer swing and I blew my brand new punching rod right in half, about a foot above. And if you go on our Facebook page, you'll see the images of it, but one pound, one ounce bass. Blew that expensive rod in half. It absolutely shocked me. In fact, it almost stabbed me in the stomach uh, and <laughs> I thought I was gonna be bleeding. It hit so hard. So I was already like emotionally pinging a little bit grab my other rod, I had a 7.5 heavy, go back to flip it, I get the second big bite on that point, set the hook, and I've got just like mega battle going on, and I thought there's no way this is a bass. And of course, it wasn't, seven and a half pound dogfish, and uh, to anybody, I'll just plea, you know, make a quick side note, I'll just plea, like, dogfish just don't get any love. I get it, they don't have taste, you know, they don't, have meat like a walleye. There's not enough of a population up here where we can consistently target them like we would a muskie or a northern pike, but those fish rock. They're ugly, they're big, they bite hard, they bite mean, they fight mean, they're awesome, and they're an indigenous native species to here. So sometimes you hear of people, you know, mistreating or abusing them or, or killing dogfish because they don't have any purpose. And that's just not so. I just ask if you catch a dogfish, grab the thing, take a picture, show it some love, and let it go, because they're just such a cool, incredible game fish that is so much fun to catch, except when you're in a, a bass tournament and trying to catch a big bass. It just sucked. But uh, we continued on. Again, really big bite, set the hook. Said, Please, Lord, let this be, let this be a bass. You see, come out of the surface, see a mouth this big. I'm like, mm, yeah, that's awesome. It ended up being like a 27-inch walleye. But the whole point of what I'm saying here, because we had nine species during this tournament. We had a small muskie, a couple pike. We had perch, bluegill, all of these different species, largemouth, smallmouth, rock bass. I mean, it just, it, it, there was so much diversity. And I think that just goes to show when we're talking about multi-species fishing, 
is, is the reason that we found all of these fish is because we used our electronics, that side imaging technology, and paid so much attention to what I think is absolutely the best midsummer pattern you can come up with. And that's finding good break lines with major transitions between either vegetation or bottom hardness. If you can just do that, and I don't care if you're in eight feet of water or if you're in 28 feet of water, you find that type of structure on our northern lakes and use your electronics and see something that looks like fish and use a presentation like a drop shot, like a Ned rig or live bait presentations, you will catch something. And a lot of people talk about the dog days of summer. I just don't buy it. Like fishing is always good if you do the right things. And in this case, you know, we were dealing with that transition side that was just awesome. We caught a ton of fish. Uh, got to run into an old employee, uh, Justin Stanky. Him and his uh, daughter ended up doing really good. They took six, and that was really cool. Caught a couple of big bass. Just a really good time. So if you're thinking about getting out and fishing here as we move into August, stick with those patterns. Look for that deeper transition, 8 to 12, in a lot of cases 20, 25, and even out to 28 feet of water if we're talking about like rock humps with smallmouth and walleye, and even in some cases, you know, perch, uh, we deal with that, or muskies. But uh, all of August, that, that pattern is going to really, really hold. We might see that low light does better morning and night, but quite honestly, if you're using a finesse presentation on these spots throughout the rest of the entirety of the summer, you're going to have some really good fishing. And if you have any questions, I've got a sneeze coming on. I promise. Okay, I'm all right. I'm not going to sneeze because I don't have COVID. All right, everybody chill out. Um, but, uh, you know, if you have any questions, feel free to hit us up on our Facebook page or go ahead and shoot an email. And we can talk about some of these different types of transitions like we're mentioning here. The other side of the token is what I've been dealing with here locally uh, in, in the last week has been food plots because deer hunting is finally on the horizon of coming. For those of you that are, you know, 365 deer hunters where we're constantly shooting or physically training or doing any of these things, like awesome for you. But for the majority of the people, we're just starting to see people kickstart into the excitement of the fall deer hunting. Over the last couple days, we had a couple of uh, you know, days where the highs were up into the mid 60s instead of mid 80s like we're dealing with today and, and have been in a lot of clouds and holy smokes, is that just mm, so awesome for getting us to start thinking about deer hunting. And uh, for me, uh, you'd heard me mention the storm for the bass tournament. Well, again, we've got the picture up on our Facebook page. It blew the tower stand over on my property that my grandpa sits in. So we've got a lot of work to do out at, at uh, the Dirty 30 right now as far as getting that thing back up. But it's food plot season. Now, because of my busy guiding schedule and the works uh, schedule at the store and everything that's going on, I have not had the time to shoot my bow like I normally did, physically train like I normally did. Like, just I haven't gotten to anything. And it really showed out at the property. Like, things look like crap out there. Absolute crap. Uh, my corn, while everybody else's is eight, nine feet tall, mine's like three and a half. And the reason that that was is I didn't get my weeds under control. I didn't get my urea, which is a 46-0-0 fertilizer on it to kick it up. Um, I'm not a farmer. I, I am a DIY deer hunter that owns a little bit of acreage. And uh, so I'm using, you know, everyday working man's class, you know, equipment to get a lot of this done. 
And I should really touch on what I do have for equipment because I think for the most part, um, it's it's reasonably you know affordable for a lot of guys to obtain, and there's really not a whole lot I can't do on on my acreage. And, and what I have is I have a standard 2004 Yamaha Kodiak 400 ATV, and on that I've got a Fimco 25 gallon sprayer, and that in itself is one of the most valuable tools that you can possibly get to. I mean, right now, if you were to go and I've had it for a long time, but there's probably $2,000 to $2,500 of worth of equipment just in those two things that really do so much. I've got a manual spreader. Uh, my I sit on the back of it. My son drives the four-wheeler and I sit there and I spin and spray my fertilizer. So that's my economical way of dealing with our couple of half acre food plots. I can spread my fertilizer and I can spray and kill. And if you can do those two things and, and maybe drag, you know, a log or some chain link fence behind to get your seed into the ground, you'd be really surprised at, at what you can accomplish as far as creating a food plot. And remember, it doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to look like Drury's. It doesn't have to look like North American whitetail. It doesn't have to be perfect. The deer does not care. If there's weeds in your food plot, nope, your crop isn't or your production isn't going to be as high. But at the end of the day, anything's better than nothing and you use what you've got to the best of your ability. You know, same thing's true with if all you've got is a hand sprayer and a metal tine rake, you can still put a food plot in, a small one, that can result in at least positioning your deer into a spot where you can take a good shot with your bow equipment. Uh, so. I think food plot, especially as we move towards, you know, nationwide ban of deer feeds and attractants and stuff like that, learning this DIY thing. Now, I do have a tractor, and it's there's not a lot of tractors that people would consider to be cute. Uh, mine's, mine's cute. It's a 1979 Kubota B7100. Now, I've read articles where this particular tractor is rated really, really well. It's a 16-horse diesel with four-wheel drive. The thing only weighs 1,100 pounds. So it fits inside of my 14-foot enclosed trailer. Um, I paid 4000 bucks for the thing. Um, and I've seen them out there cheaper than that. But, um, but this, this unit was in really nice shape. Um, I've got a 4-foot rototiller for it that I bought used. And i got a 4-foot brush hog. So total equipment cost is under $10,000. Uh, that allows me to, and actually quite a bit under 10000 that allows me to manage um, roughly six acres of food plots on my property. So it's it's definitely something where if you can piece it together piece by piece over several years, it's really an obtainable thing, whereas a lot of people have this mindset that we've got to go, obviously, to the 75 horse right away. But that's, to me, I, I call it a working man's class uh, operation, and it works really, really well for me. So back to where we were at with the land, I, I had planted a couple of acres of corn for two reasons. One is a visual deterrent from the county highway that my property's on to some of my better food sources because shining is such a issue around our area. And in some cases, poaching, I've had incidences where people have shot uh, at animals on my place. And then the other side is creating a wintering food source. Now with where I was at, because I was so far behind getting my urea on and getting the weeds killed off that had grown up that I hadn't nuked good, as good as I had thought, uh, is that there was still time. And I was down in the dumps, like totally just out of it. It's a waste. Look at everybody else's stuff. I'm seeing things cobbed out already. And then you know, my buddy Brian, who I do a lot of my hunts with, just reminded me that just because everybody else's is so good, this is such an uncommon year with high... Uh, sun and with good moisture and early planting conditions just remember the knee high by the fourth of july thing and i had reached that milestone he's like 
just get after it. So we, we dumped a couple hundred pounds of urea on it. We went and sprayed to kill the weeds. And while I might not get, you know, like standard corn harvest production, I'm hoping and I'm really, 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 really hoping that uh, we can salvage that and still get some corn cob production, which is going to be of, of a physical, you know, benefit to my deer. And if nothing else, I'm going to treat it the same way that I would treat any other cover screen like Egyptian wheat or, you know, silver uh, switchgrass or anything like that. Just something that I can walk behind to get to other pieces of my property and hunt. And that's went really well. Um, my clover fields, my grass got up to like six, seven feet tall. That doesn't mean that it's garbage. I just went through and I mowed and I left it about that high, left my blade above that high above the ground. And what happens is it only takes about a week and you'll see all that clover that was underneath there, go ahead and pop up and look really good. So I still have, despite my entire lack of attention to the property this year, a really good early season food source. Now I'm still trying to find and put together a situation where I've got good food throughout the entirety of the deer season. So here's what my plan is. We went and we sprayed half of our clover food plot that we'd already mowed. And then I went and sprayed some stuff inside of my corn. And our plant there is going to come in here in about another week or so. We're going to plant a lot of variety of stuff. Daikon radishes, uh, turnip, brassicas, rye, um, rape, a whole variety of things. I'm going to get that in the ground here. Like I said, next, next two to three weeks max, I'll have everything in that I wanted to have in. The big thing is, is because of the short growth window that we're looking at before we get into late September and October, is remember, like, like my buddy Brian says, it's not rocket science, but it is chemistry. Make sure that we're doing soil tests and we're getting the proper amount of fertilizer in there. So if you're in our area, North Central Wisconsin, my food plots are not perfect, my property is not perfect, but it's because I'm just like you and I'm working all the time and I have all these other things going on with family and friends and hobbies and stuff like that. So if you've got any questions, I do use Real Deal slash G2 Seed Products, which are a Wisconsin-based company that we've worked with for years. Their product is fantastic, but a product is only as good as the soil and the fertilizer that you put into it. So make sure that you're properly fertilizing it and you'll have great production, great success, and it absolutely moves the needle. The last thing I'm gonna talk about in regards to property in an upcoming deer season is the fact that I put some new trail cam systems out on my property. I've I've been tampering with a lot of different things and right now I'm running the Cutty Back Cutty Link system. And I've had a four pack of that system for the last four years, or four years, for the last two years, it's the four pack. And if you're unfamiliar with what Cutty Link is, is basically it's Cuddyback's trail camera. But what's really cool about that is that all the cameras speak to each other. So I can set one as a home camera and the rest is what they call remote cameras that will work up to a quarter mile apart from each other. So what's nice about that is, is the way my property set up where I've got field in the front, food plot in the middle, and then I've got bedding and swamp in the back. What it allows me to do is put those cameras in the back where those deer are bedding and leave them completely undisturbed. And then all those images from that camera will send up to my home camera, which I have up in the front of the property. So by checking one camera, I can check all of them simultaneously. And that is really awesome. The one knock if I'll find something about the Cuddy Link system is the fact that battery life because of the transmission is greatly reduced as to some of the other units that are out there. 
here's what they're doing to remedy that and what I've been doing to remedy that. They have transitioned their old cameras from AA cameras to D battery cameras, and that's helped a lot. But in addition to that, you can add a separate container with more D batteries in it. In, in, I know it's a lot of D batteries, and I'm not a huge fan of that, but it seems like a great expense. I bought them on bulk from different online services, and I get my batteries down around that 50 to 60 cent uh, a piece range. So I'm getting almost an entire year out of that. But this year what they've done, and it's a $60 add-on, is they now have a rechargeable solar panel that you can mount to that, which the solar panel actually charges a battery pack inside of it. And once that dies out, then it starts using the D batteries inside. That battery pack charges back up. It goes back to it. So you get tremendous battery life out of just adding that solar panel as long as you've got good sun. If you're in a dark swamp, forget the solar panel and go to that battery pack. So the solar panels are something new that I've added, and that's worked really good. But now I've gone into the cellular side. I had my existing four cameras, which roughly you're looking at about $199 a piece. And now I've added the cell unit. Now, the cell unit is also $199, and it functions as long as you've got Cuddyback cellular program. And that can be a variety of different price points based off of how often you use it and how many images that you want. There's a reduction rate for going the whole year. But for me, I'm only looking at using it like four or five months. So I've gone with, with the $20 a month program. And that's worked really well for as much as I'm going to use those cameras. I don't put them out in the springtime. I've got, I don't use them on bear baits. Um, but that uses, by choice, Verizon or AT&T. And this is something that I get a lot of people that have questions about that. Well, I've got Cellcom or I've got Sprint or I've got... That doesn't matter. When you choose the camera that you buy as your cell unit, it doesn't matter what your cell phone information is. What matters is who's got reception here or there. Like up by Lake Alice we're in Tomahawk where we were fishing the other week, I had a cell tower right in front of me. And with AT&T, I had zero reception because it was a Verizon cell tower. So finding that out before you make that purchase is really important. And for me, where my land is, Verizon works great. So I did buy the Verizon camera. So with that as my normal camera, which setup was really quite easy, now I have five cameras that are all functioning as a cellular camera. The benefit is that I only have to buy one plan for one camera. Whereas with everybody else, you have to buy a cell plan for every single camera that you buy. So that can add up to hundreds of dollars a month, depending on how many you run, as opposed to running up to 32 cameras on one cell plan. So that's where the huge, huge benefit to cutting back versus everybody else is. And um, so far, it sends your images to you in two ways, one through text and one through email. You can add access it through the website at any time. And I set it so I'm getting pictures every four hours. One thing it's been really, really bad for is my work production and my home production, and everything production. Because all I'm doing is looking at the pictures all the time, and it's been a lot of fun. We've been been watching deer and turkeys and bear over the last several days, and it's helped already give me a little bit better understanding of my property and what's going on in inventory right now, what's out there. So that's a really, really good system. As far as other systems that are out there, we're selling Tacticam now, which has a $99 blackout camera that has as low as a $5 a month. So if you just want to dabble and get started in a single camera, that Tacticam is awesome. But uh, if you've got more information or want more information 
Of course, you can reach out to any of our store professionals, but that has really been a nice addition to the Dirty 30 this year. So next week, I don't know exactly where we're going to go. I know one thing that's happened over the last week, Nick Brantner of North Country Marketing and I have been spending a lot of time on Rib Mountain hiking and get ready because mule deer is just a couple months around the corner and uh and we're gonna go after the Widowmaker this year we're going way way back so maybe we'll discuss that next week i'm not sure we'll get to that but as always i hope you guys are well i hope you guys are blessed good luck on the water and in the woods we'll talk to you next week